This is Dirk Manning, the writer and creator of Nightmare World, Tales of Mystery, and Love Stories About Death, as well as that writer on column over at Newsarama.com. And you are very fortunate right now because you are listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. Now, today on Genretainment, we speak to award-winning sci-fi author Mike Resnick. Plus, we have one of the interviews I did while filming in New York on the sets of Star Trek Phase Two. And what you just heard at the beginning of the show is a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand, a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. And you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now, in a moment, we'll be speaking to Mike Resnick, personally one of my favorite sci-fi writers, so it was a treat to finally get to chat with him. And Resnick tells us how he started in writing, gives tips for new writers, tells us what upcoming projects he has, and he has a lot, and he gives details about some of his most popular books and so much more. Then we have one of the interviews I did while doing cinematography for the award-winning fan web series Star Trek Phase Two. Some people may know it as New Voyages, as it was originally called. This time, chat with director Mark Burchett, talks a little bit about his background, and gives some hints about the upcoming episodes that he has directed for the series. Both of these people, both Resnick and Burchett, are both Midwesterners, so that's my link to it. (laughs) So let's get to our featured interview with writer Mike Resnick. You're listening to John Entertainment, and today we have sci-fi writer Mike Resnick with us. I believe he's won five Hugo Awards and won some Nebula Awards. I have five Hugos from 36 Hugo nominations, which not only makes me one of the one of the bigger winners, but probably the all-time loser. <laughs> and um, I've got a Nebula, and, I, and I've won awards in uh, France, Spain, Croatia, um, Poland, and Japan, as well as here. Wow. That must be exciting to have so many people all around the world reading your books. Yes, and I've lost awards all around the world, too. <laughs> well, you got to lose sometimes to win. So. <laughs> right. All right. Well, let's talk about what you're, you're doing right now. Well, I'm always doing three or four things at once. Right now, I am finishing a mystery novel uh, titled The Trojan Cult for a uh, publisher called Seventh Street. I'm writing a uh, science fiction novel, the third in a, uh, the fourth in a series, called The Doctor and the Dinosaurs. And I'm collaborating on a screenplay with Harry Clure, who is a, uh, a screenwriter and a producer. And uh, it's called uh, Some Heroes Die, and it's not science fiction. Hmm. And I'm, I'm always writing a bunch of short stories I usually do about eight or ten a year and some some articles great and now the screenplay that's with Jupiter 9 productions yeah what can you tell us about it besides not being a sci-fi well it is based on a true story about the uh, woman who actually uh, went to war with Congress for about ten years in the Washington DC area and uh, finally beat the teachers union and and got uh voucher schools and charter schools uh accepted and legal. Hmm. And how did you get involved in that? Uh, do you write screenplays very often? No, I've only done a couple. Uh they, I did one of Santiago uh for uh Capella and one of uh another of my books The Widowmaker for Miramax. Neither of them have been made, but those were the only two I've done and uh 
a friend of mine, Harry Kluwer, who, as I say, is a screenwriter, he also is the only man in, in history in any country to get two PhDs in two different sciences in the same year. So you wonder why a guy that bright is wasting his time in Hollywood. But he, he asked me to collaborate with him on this one, so I uh, I said sure. That's great. Now, you mentioned Santiago and Widowmaker. Santiago, um, that's probably one of your most famous books, uh, Myth of the Far Future. I think it was published in 86. Uh, oh, and it stayed in print continuously for 25 years. Finally went out of print in 2011. Ah, yeah, and that's one of the first of your books that I read. Um so, so you wrote a screenplay. I was wondering if there was any interest in making that a movie because I thought that would be a, a good one. I know. Well, you know, I would love to see it made into a movie. Uh, it'll pay me more than the book ever did. But on the other hand, it has been under continuous option since 1989. So they have probably already paid me more in option money than I would have gotten if they made the movie in 1989. <laughs> and, and how do those option deals work? Do they you have a limited amount of years for them to make it then? Well, usually what will happen is they'll come to you and they will offer X number of dollars uh, for a one or two year option, renewable once. And uh, all that means is you agree to keep your your property off the market while they go around for that time period, one or two years, and, and try and raise money, uh, if not to make the movie, at least to get uh, what we call development money, which usually comes to about half a million dollars, and, and it pays for screenplays and rewrites and this and that and, and publicity. And uh, all it means is, you know, instead of a million to one, uh, it's down to about 200 to one against their making it. There are some properties that, uh, uh, you know, if you're Stephen King, you're probably getting half a million dollars option because they know they're going to make it. If if you're down where I'm at, uh, the option is considerably less because, as I say, the odds are 100 to 1 they won't make it. Uh, about half the executives in Hollywood are in the business of not making movies. <laughs> See, as long as a movie, uh, a property stays in development, everybody keeps getting paid. But when the movie comes out and loses uh, money, uh, there there are a few people who will never work in that business again, and and they protect their asses by uh, making sure that that most of the films don't get made. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there 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 are a number of ways to destroy a movie that are done every day. Uh, one of them is uh, multi multiple writers. Um, mm-hmm. Almost no movie gets done by one writer. One of the reasons is uh, protective coloration. You're you're an executive. If you okay a big loser like, say, The Postman, which was not a horrible movie but had a horrible box office, uh, you don't work again. But if you hire me and then Joe Blow and Joe Blow's brother and then the guy down the street and... now you walk up to the producers and say, well, you know, I hired six of the best writers. They couldn't make it work, and you're off the hook. Another thing that happens is that uh, when you hear about these million-dollar uh, f- fees for, for screenwriters, uh, that's not so uh, in, in the sense that, that most people think. You might get anywhere from fifty dollars to $150,000 up front for writing the script and rewriting and rewriting, and all the rest is a bonus based on credit. If you get a sole credit, you get the whole bonus. If you get a half credit, shared credit, you get half the bonus. And the Writers Guild West 
determines who gets credit. And they tend to favor the original writer. So if I'm the original writer and they call you in and say, uh, hey, we want you to you know, just lose the brother and you know, spruce up the dialogue a little bit, the first thing you're going to do is rewrite 80% of the screenplay so you can get part of the credit and part of the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, it, it's a, I shouldn't say it's out of my bail like I'm doing it, but it's something I do very rarely. I mean, I've written well over 100 books, and I've written three screen or two and a half screenplays. Well, I'm curious, how do you approach? It's a little different because you're adapting your stories, but but how do you approach writing that the structure-wise versus you know your your novels? Oh, you. One of the things I learned is. Uh, Hollywood and their box office receipts over the the last century show they're right. They they don't like words. They like images. Mm-hmm. And they especially distrust science fiction writers because they don't like ideas. They like emotions. And all you do is simplify, simplify, simplify. Uh, and uh, I, anytime I have a page uh, where half of the page is dialogue, I throw it out and, and rewrite it because they don't want to hear a lot of words. Uh, a best example of that would be 2001, A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Sit down and watch it someday and put a, a clock on it. And that film goes more than an hour before the first word is spoken. That's what film can do that books can't. Mm-hmm. That's true. And you can't get inside the character's head either like a, like a book. Right. That you know, That's another problem. Uh, I much prefer books. I mean, it's what I make my living, and uh, I don't watch that many movies. I, I prefer to read books. But uh, you know, Hollywood plays with monopoly money, so when they when they call, I come. <laughs> now let's talk about those two uh, previous books that you wrote scripts for, uh, Widowmaker and, and uh, Santiago. Can you tell us a little bit about those stories for those people who haven't read them? Yeah, um, Santiago is a my attempt to write a myth of the far future, uh, it's way out on the galactic frontier. It's got a bunch of bigger-than-life characters with bigger-than-life names, kind of thing you might have uh, told about the, the frontier, our frontier, 120, 130 years ago. And um, it's about a mythical bandit who may or may not be do, doing what he's doing for, for good and noble reasons, and all the people who are out, out trying to catch him. Uh, and the reason I wound up doing it for Hollywood, uh, it, had, it had been a bestseller. It was actually my, my very first bestseller. It was on the New York Times list for a while. And uh, Hollywood optioned it. And after a year or so, I, I wrote to the producer. And I said, you know, anything going on? I mean, you know, it's really none of my business. You guys have the option. But uh, is there going to be a movie? And they said, um, we're going to show you the script. And uh, you tell us what you think. And they sent me the script, and I I couldn't believe it. My my loner hero has a five-year-old nephew called called Jimmy. Uh, my heroine is a 40-year-old, not very pretty, over-the-hill reporter, and she's become a 22-year-old Mexican Spitfire. And you know everything was like that. And and I I wrote him back, and I said uh, you know. You, you guys aren't really going to do this, are you? And I said, well, we're not pleased with the script. Well, I could see why. And I said, let me just write you an opening scene and show you how you might think about it and tell your writer to do that. So I sent them an opening scene, and uh, they called back a couple of days later and said, uh, would, would I like to write the script? 
And I said, no, I wouldn't, but I'll write it because I'm afraid if I don't, you're going to use the one you've got. <laughs> and they hired me to write the script. <laughs> and um, what had happened was they also had a young team. Now, the film never got made, but they, they had a young team they had hired to uh, do the uh, directing, special effects and all. And this was going to be their second film. Their first film was going to be for Miramax. And one day Miramax asked what they were doing for Capella, and they showed them my script. And Miramax said, uh, you know, they they wanted to talk to me, so they flew me out, and uh, they uh, they bought The Widowmaker and asked me to write it, and uh, I did. And uh, then they uh, they decided uh, they it was for a, a new company of theirs. I think it's probably still in business called Dimensions. It was going to do science fiction and horror. And their first couple of science fiction films bombed, so they decided just to stick with horror, and they they canceled the project. But they paid me for the script. Uh, I don't I don't do spec work for anybody. I mean, before I sit down to write it, I have to have a contract, and, and they gave me one. And that script is probably moldering in a safe somewhere. I think I wrote it about <laughs> 18, well, not quite that long. Yeah, about 16 years ago. Hmm. And Widowmaker, what what is that about? Um. Uh, I had always gotten tired of reading about clones who hop off the table or out of the lab ready to go. And uh, it just didn't seem very logical to me. So I I wrote a story called The Widowmaker. Uh, The Widowmaker is a a, uh, lawman, bounty hunter, uh, who's considered uh, the best in in, in the galaxy of his trade, but he uh, comes down with a hideous, disfiguring disease that is about to kill him. And he has stockpiled enough money so that he can uh, put himself into a, a chirogenic uh, freezing unit until they come up with a cure. Well, inflation runs rampant, and they run out of money. And uh, the only way they can keep, keep him frozen is to clone him and send the clone out to do a job that somebody has offered to pay for. And the clone is him at 22 years old. He's got all of his skills. He's beautifully trained to be a, a lawman and a bounty hunter, but he's two months old. Uh, this is the problem I always had with, with clones coming coming out of the lab ready ready to perform. This guy is physically ready, but, but mentally he's he's been alive for all of about six weeks. He, he's had all kinds of education tapes. He can speak the language and all, but he he. he can't spot when somebody lies to him. He can't spot when a woman is leading him on. And uh, in the end, he dies. And the publisher said, no, we can't end it like that. You've got to do another one. So I did a second book called uh, The Widowmaker Reborn. And in this time, I gave him all the original's memories. But the original's been frozen for a century, and those memories are a century out of date, which just about kills him as well. In the third book, it was a trilogy, the the uh, original is now a 64-year-old guy, and uh, he has been cured. And all he wants to do is retire and tend to his flowers and not bother anyone. But he is constantly running into enemies that the first two clones made, uh, enemies that he doesn't recognize as enemies because he wasn't around for it. Mm. And those are the three books in essence. Many of your stories, even though they're sci-fi, do have a certain kind of Western feel, like bounty hunters and, and, and such. And then I think you've done a weird Western series, actually, right now. Oh, yeah, I've, I've just – that that's one, the one I'm doing right now. But well, actually, I'm probably most famous for my African stuff. I've been to Africa a number of times, mm-hmm. and I have a book called Kiranyaga, which is the most 
awarded book in, in science fiction history. It's got something like 67 awards and nominations. And uh, I, I have my most awarded story is called Seven Views of Old of I Gorge, and it takes place in Africa. So uh, for the longest time, a number of critics, uh, with, without ever asking, thought I was black and said so in print. <laughs> uh, what are those stories about? Some of them are too complex to tell you very briefly. Um, Karen Yaga is a series of, of ten connected stories, and, and they were published separately, but it's really a novel. It builds to a climax about a um, terraformed world that is populated. In fact, there are a number of them, uh, and, and each is, is settled by a group trying to create a utopia. And uh, it was originally Orson Scott Card's idea. He he was going to do an anthology, and I wrote a story for him. And the anthology, 25 years later, hasn't come out, but he gave me permission to sell the story, and then I, I sold nine more that were connected. And I uh, did a um, an East African utopia, the Kikuyu people, uh, who feel, uh, and I've been there enough, uh, most of them w would agree with the, the principle that uh, they... Um, they were very close to a utopian society uh, in their minds before the advent of the Europeans. And this is a uh, society that uh, the leader is trying to bring back to that, that purity. And, of course, it doesn't work. Uh, even if you had a utopia, societies evolve. If it was a utopia today, it wouldn't be one tomorrow by definition because it would have changed. And uh, it's, it's about the attempts on his part to keep it the way it is, and on, on the society's part to evolve. Right. What is it that draws you to Africa, because you've visited so many times? Uh, well, first, it's absolutely beautiful. We love uh, going on safari. We, we don't shoot anything. We photograph them. But more to the point, I think if you were to ask any any reasonable person, if we if we can ever achieve faster than light speeds, what are we going to do? And the answer is, we're going to colonize the stars. Mm -hmm. And if we colonize enough of them, we're going to come into contact with sentient races. And I think Africa offers 51 separate and distinct examples of the deleterious effects of, of colonization, both on the colonizers and the colonized. And uh, most science fiction, to one degree or another, even the fun stuff, is a literature of warning because uh, all fiction has to have a conflict. So you're, you're, you're never going to have, uh, you know, a, a true utopian story. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to point out what some of the things that might happen uh, if, if we don't learn from our past mistakes. Hmm. Now, that story was going to be a collaboration, an anthology series, and I've noticed in your career you collaborate a great deal with different writers. How did you first get involved in that, and uh, how does it differ from writing solo, and which do you enjoy more? I enjoy writing solo more. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason I did it originally was uh, there were a couple of brilliant young writers who I knew, and when I was editing anthologies, they had sold stories to me. And uh, one of them, uh, the story made the Hugo Ballot, and it was the first story he'd ever sold. And uh, when I finally met him at the convention a few months later, I asked him seriously why he had sent it to an anthology when the magazines 
had about at that time about five times the circulation, and he was much more likely to get noticed and and to uh, you know get on the ward ballot. Although he managed anyway, and his answer was that uh, he'd sent it to every magazine in the field, and they'd all given him form rejects. Hmm. And uh, to me, that meant uh, they weren't reading him because they didn't know his name. And I was afraid uh, we were going to lose a really brilliant writer to mysteries or espionage or something else. So um, I, I get 10 or 12 invitations to write for anthologies every year, and the next three or four I got. I collaborated with him just to get him in print and keep it, keep him in our field. Mm-hmm. And I started doing that with a lot of other writers. And uh, Maureen McHugh, herself a Hugo winner, calls them Mike's writer children. There are about 25 of them over the years that uh, <laughs> I collaborate with. Uh, when I'm editing anthologies, I buy from them. When we're at conventions, I introduce them to to uh, editors and agents, and it's my way of uh, thanking the field for being so good to me. I I, uh, I can't pay back. Everybody who helped me is rich or dead or both, so I pay forward. <laughs> oh, that's really great. Now, that idea reminds me of a project you said you're working on, the Stellar Guild series. Oh yeah, and that that's part of the same thing. Um, what what happened? Uh, a publisher, his name is Shahid Mahmoud, he came, I, I had sold him some, some books, some reprints. He came up and he said, uh, he knows I've edited a bunch of stuff, and they've been nominated a couple of times uh, for Hugo's for Best Editor. Can we do a, uh, a, a series of books together? And I said, sure, let, let's talk about it. And what we came up with was the Stellar Guild series, in which we buy or commission a novella from a superstar writer. And then we let the writer choose a protege to do a companion piece, another novella. Uh, So, so far, uh, the ones that are in print are by Kevin J. Anderson, who I think has had 42, 43 bestsellers, and Mercedes Lackey, who has had just about that many. The ones we have coming out next are by Harry Turtledove, a bestseller and a Hugo winner, and by Robert Silverberg, one of the giants of the field. And the ones we have under contract are from uh, Nancy Kress, who's a multiple Nebula and Hugo winner, and myself, and Eric Flint, another bestseller, and um, Larry Niven, also a bestseller and a multiple award winner. And the the conceit here is that each of them gets to choose their own protege. I, I have nothing to do with it, and whatever I think of it, I, I accept the one they choose. And... Now, these are people who, who make huge money, and they're they're contracted years ahead. And when I walked up to each of them and said, you know, I want a novella from you for this series, every one of them said no. And then when I added that I want a companion piece by a protege that you choose, and he will share cover credit with you, every one of them found time to do it. Mm, so I'm, I'm very proud of this field. That is great that, you're, that so many writers are willing to help other newer writers uh, grow in their career. Yeah, this field is, has always been very, very generous. I think part of it, seriously, may be that we have so many conventions. Uh-huh. Uh, I think the mystery writers have just one or two, plus uh, the the, uh, the Edgar Award ceremony. And the Western writers have the Spur ceremony. Maybe they have a convention. But science fiction has about two or 300 a year. If you're a science fiction writer and you just go to – three or four of the bigger conventions, in two or three years' time, you've met 90% of your peers. 
And you tend to get along with them because you do the same stuff and you have much the same interest and you exchange information and you, you tend to want uh, the next generation to enjoy it as much as you have. So you go out of your way to help them. And then I may do it a little more publicly, but everybody in this field that I'm aware of has, has helped somebody along the way. Mm-hmm. That's great. You know, I'm curious. I mean, you've been in the field for a little while, and uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least a few years. A little while. <laughs> and, uh, I think my first science fiction book was 1966. Oh, really? That far back? Wow. So you've been with book publishing for many, many decades. And I was curious how you've seen it change over the years, especially with the growth of ebooks and and how it's affected bookstores so much. Uh, with oh, it's affected books. everything. Uh, first, uh, even before we get to ebooks, let me suggest that there are an awful lot of ways to make money uh, uh, for a writer to make money in our field and in any field really, other than you know simply going out and selling a hardcover and a paperback. One of the things that, that most outsiders and even beginners aren't aware of is that unless you're getting a bestseller type advance, you know, six, seven digits, you'll make more money from the rest of the world than you make from America. You won't make it in one lump, but uh, there are about 15, 20 countries that have very active science fiction publishing, uh, what's the word I want? Programs, I guess, is as good as any. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Maybe you won't go out and get ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for your book from different countries, but you'll get maybe six from Japan and five from England and four from France and two from Poland and three from Russia and four from Spain and on and on and on. And, and uh, that, that's something that most people weren't aware of. And, and these programs of, especially the Iron Curtain countries. Um, they they weren't a market at all because they they there was it was an iron curtain and and their money was totally controlled, but for the last twenty years they have been incredibly active and and aggressive in in hunting down the writers they wanted and then dealing with them. Another thing is audio. Um, I just made a twenty eight book sale to Audible dot com. Uh-huh. Uh, they're they're you know reprints. They're not new books, but these books were gathering dust, and somebody just bought 28 of them for a very handsome price. These are these are things that nobody did 10 or 12 years ago. And then, of course, there's e-books. Uh, very few of us go out and sell like Amanda Hocking, who is, is the poster child for e-books, because she was a rejected, unsold romance writer who suddenly sold like 3 million copies of, of for eight or nine e-books. Uh, the thing is that while we may not sell like that, there there are certain things that we can do. Um, I have, for example, I, as I said, I've, I've sold over 100 books. I've got about 75 that have reverted to me that are not in print anymore. And I have published, self-published most of these. Uh, they're for sale at Amazon and then Barnes and Apple and whatever. But more to the point, uh, I'm getting 70% royalties on those, whereas if I go with a publisher, I get 10%. Hmm. Now, I wouldn't do it for a new book. Writers live on advances, and, and these things don't don't sell, the, uh, at least in, in most of our cases, the way uh, a, a published book sells because uh, the publisher has a publicity department. He's got all kinds of things that we don't have and, and we don't want to spend the money on. But for a book that, again, like like the Audible books, is just sitting around gathering dust, 
this is a great thing to do. You know, you put it up, and you, every time you sell one, you make 70% instead of 10. Writers can count. They're all going to be doing that. For audible.com, do they just read the book, or do they add sound effects? I'm curious because I've seen different ways of doing it. Um, right now, I'm I, I'm getting uh, emails from about 15, 20 different actors who each have been assigned one of the books, and they want to know how to pronounce some of the words. Uh, some of them are, are made up alien words, but some of the words that just floor me when they don't know them are like Clara Bow or uh, Terra, the planet we live on. Uh, I told one of them, uh, he, uh, he's an actor, he's 38, 39 years old, and he came to the word, the name Basil, and he wanted to know how to pronounce it, and I said, well, like Basil Rathbone, and he said, who's that? How could you be a 39-year-old actor and not know Basil Rathbone? <laughs> but anyway, uh, they do read them aloud, and they record them. And Audible is, is not going away anytime soon. Amazon bought it about four years ago for $300 million. And Amazon then paid that kind of money for for losing propositions. But uh, there, there are others. Audible only does downloads. Uh, I have also sold to Blackstone Audio, which is one of the ones you see in the bookstore uh, on CDs. Uh-huh. And I've sold to a third company. I can't even remember the name of it now. That My agent does most of my selling but uh, also on CDs. So there, there are all kinds of ways to do this Great. that that didn't exist 20 years ago or 30 years ago when I, I was getting started and breaking in. Now, going back to some of your recurring styles, I mean, you have African culture in some of your stories, and then you have sort of a semi-Western or Western feel in some of your stories. Yeah, and I've, I've done... One other thing as well, I, I hadn't realized it until my bibliographer pointed it out. I've sold 130 some funny stories mm-hmm. and eight or nine funny books, which is pretty rare in this field. Mm-hmm. So you're obviously well. I know when we talked back and forth the email, you were cracking some jokes. So uh, so comedy is probably something that's in your your veins and kind of comes yeah, it, out. Yeah, it, it it it's always been considered very hard to sell, but. For some reason, I've never had any problem with that. Uh, as I say, probably better better than a third of my stories are, are funny ones. Now, speaking of Westerns, you've actually done straight up – well, I haven't read these, so I, I may not say that, but you call them weird Westerns. So I'm assuming they take place in the West. Um, uh, I can explain that. Uh, my editor, a fellow called Lou Anders, who himself won the Hugo for Best Editor last year, uh-huh. fine, fine editor, uh, I, I'd been writing for him quite regularly. He bought a couple of series for me, and then uh, when one of the series ended, he calls me up and he says, uh, "Why don't you give me a uh, a weird western?" And I said, "What's that?" And he said, "Look it up on Wikipedia." So son of a bitch, there it is in Wikipedia. So uh, a weird western is a western with with certain bizarre fantasy elements. Uh, so that uh, I, I decided to, uh, I've, I've always liked Doc Holliday's characters. I decided to set this thing in Tombstone, uh, at least the first of them, about the time of the O.K. Corral. And the United States has been halted at the Mississippi River by the magic of the Indian medicine men. Mm-hmm. So they need to go out uh, and find out uh, you know, how, how to deal with this, where the weaknesses are. So they uh, take the brightest American they can find, which is Thomas Edison, 
and they send him out there uh, to study the Indians and see what he can, he can come up with to counter it. So I even get to do steampunk as well as weird western. Uh, he's using science, and the Indians are using magic, uh, enough so that Bat Masterson has turned into Ho-Ho, a vampire bat. Uh, Johnny Ringo is a zombie, and that makes him very, very hard to kill. Anyway, um, I, I, I started doing that, and the series got very, very popular, so I, I've written two more, uh, The Doctor and the Kid, uh, Doc Holliday, uh, as everybody knows, I'm sure, was tubercular and died quite young, and um, he had found a uh, an institution in in Leadville, Colorado, which is where he actually died, and uh, a sanitarium. And um, because he was also a drunk and a gambler, in the beginning of the second book, he gets drunk and loses all his money. Now he's got to raise a grub stake so that he can be taken care of in his few remaining uh, months or years. And the only other thing he knows how to do besides pull teeth is kill people. And uh, the biggest reward is for Billy the Kid. Mm. In the third book, uh, The Doctor and the Rough Rider, you never guess who the Rough Rider is, that has to do with Teddy Roosevelt, who happened to have been out west about the time Doc Holliday was was out there. Mm-hmm. And the fourth one, which I'm writing right now, uh, is called The Doctor and the Dinosaurs. And uh, it occurred to me that the what we call the Bone Wars, the wars between uh, Charles O'Neill Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope, the two great paleontologists of the 19th century, uh, who hated each other's guts, even got Congress to pass laws against each other, but came up with two, three hundred different dinosaur specimens, again occurred just before Holiday died, and I, I was able to to find a way to do that too again if they're if these are weird westerns which they are which means fantasy and uh, they happen to be digging in an Indian graveyard without knowing it how would an Indian retaliate by bringing to life what they're digging for hmm. anyway Cope and Marsh really really were fascinating um, it was said I've got an awful lot of research material on that and it's fresh in my mind because I'm working <laughs> on it. it it was said that. Uh, the third most important job on one of their digs was paleontologist. Mm-hmm. Second most important job was riding shotgun to keep the Indians at bay. And the most important job on both of their digs was saboteur. Hmm. They really hated each other. <laughs> it sounds like it. But when they started, only three species of dinosaur had been found in America. When they finished about 20 years later, over 200 had been found, thanks to them. How much research do you usually do for your books? I mean, obviously, this is a period piece. Uh, usually nowhere near this much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they say, write what you know. Well, if I'm making up a world, I know it better than you do, and that's just about enough. <laughs> but when I'm starting to, to mess with history, then, yeah, then I really have to do this. How much do you worry about, like, when you're getting historical characters like this, trying to figure out what their personalities would be like, or do you just take a rough idea of their of their historical? Well, I, I take what I want to write and and what will work in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I've made Doc Holliday probably a lot pleasanter and given him a much more sardonic sense of humor than historically. Historically, he was supposed to be a mean drunk 23 hours a day. And uh, that doesn't play very well in a book when he's the main character. So uh, I softened him and I made him uh, a little different. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Any well, movie... It's a work of fiction. 
Any movie deals on on that yet? Because I would think that would be a no, not yet. Uh, probably because the, the series keeps appearing. Uh, I imagine when I'm done with it, somebody will talk to me. When we say movie deals, again, you know, the odds are thousands to one against. I have like eleven properties currently under option, mm-hmm. and I would lay you very, very good money that none of them ever get made. I hope I'm wrong, and I love cashing their option checks every year, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I've I've been doing that long enough so that I know what the odds are. Yeah. And, you know, writers keep saying, well, why should that be? And the answer is, you know, fella, if your publisher had to raise $75 bucks every time he published a book, there wouldn't be a lot in the bookstores, would there? <laughs> exactly. I think there's only a few hundred movies made every year, so at least in America. I've also had, uh, you were saying short films. I, I've had five short films made of my stuff, uh, none of them commercial, uh, Usually, in fact, in, in three of the five cases, it was a film school student who came up and asked permission and, to make a short film, basically as his term paper or his master's thesis, whatever. And I've always given permission on, on the assumption they'll, you know, if they'll sign a contract saying that it's an amateur film, so I, I still have the right to sell it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And at the WorldCon, uh, the World Science Fiction con- Convention, about two months ago. I, I was the guest of honor this year, and uh, they asked me if I, if I would bring some of these films and show them. So I, 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 they gave me three hours, and I showed five of the short films. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I was just curious about how that would work. So if they sign a contract saying it's amateur, then someone else who comes along and wants to buy your story, they're okay that that story exists? Is, is it because there's no distribution, I guess, for a short film? It's not really... It's right. Only, well, uh, short run. they're not allowed to distribute it. Uh, it's an amateur project made solely for you know their their grade in their school, whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, they are not allowed to make a penny on it. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to show it for money. Yeah, I always thought that the Oracle trilogy would make an awesome, very, really interesting. Uh, well, that that was under option for about five years. I saw the uh, the written screenplay. It was all right. It was, I, wouldn't have written it that way, but it was a company called Red Giant Media, and after five years, they couldn't raise the money, and they finally gave up the option. Now, you have a tremendous amount of books and short films that you've written. Uh, I don't know how you have the time. <laughs> so I'm just kind of curious, how, how fast do you write a book? I wish I could tell you. Um, the, the thing is, I never work on just one, one thing at once. When I'm writing a book, I'll take a few days off, maybe three different times during the book to write a short story, and then I come back to the book refreshed. I do regular columns for different publications. I have to do those every month or two. So when I say, uh, you know, it'll take me four months to do this book, that's four months including everything else I do. If I sat down and just did the book, probably probably a month and a half. Uh, I have done books in another field in my starving writer days under pseudonyms, the quote adult field uh, in as little as three days, <laughs> but they were they were books. You know, the only person I wanted to know my name was the guy who signed the checks. <laughs> uh, you know, an awful lot of us came out of that field. There, there's always been a field in American letters where if you were fast and facile and willing to work under a pseudonym, you can make a decent living while you were learning how to write. In the 30s and 40s, it was the pulps. In the 70s, it was gothics. In the 50s and 60s, it was the adult field, which some people call the sex field. Although I must say that modern romance novels are much sexier than the stuff we wrote in the sex field. 
back then. And uh, some of the guys that came out of that field uh, uh, have, have gone on to pretty good things. It's not just me. There, there's Robert Silverberg, also a Worldcon guest of honor and a multiple Hugo winner. Donald E. Westlake, who won a number of Edgars and was a screenwriter and a mystery grandmaster. Lawrence Block, who has four Edgars and was a mystery grandmaster. And it wasn't limited just to guys. Uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley wrote a number of them under pseudonyms. As I say, it was a good training ground where you could make very, very decent money while you were learning how. And my rule of thumb was always that I would never take more than four days to write one because I always thought if it took me five days, my brain had turned to porridge and run out my ear. So I learned <laughs> to write very, very, very fast. <laughs> well, how big are these, these books you wrote? Oh, back then I would imagine 50,000 words for a book. Uh-huh. Huh. I didn't know that. About, about half what they are today, but as I say, that, that was just, you know, I grinded out field. Nobody really cared about it. Uh, and one, one after another, these guys either went into total obscurity or became pretty good writers. Maybe I should try that. Another one is Barry Malsberg, over 100 books. He got his start there. <laughs> that's, what I sh- that's what I should do for film. I should do, like, pornography just to build up money <laughs> and then... <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, none of these books were strong enough to ever get busted. And as I say, uh, if you look at some of the stuff we did in the 60s, early 60s, and compare it to the typical romance novel today, or vampire romance, or any oh, paranormal, paranormal romance, paranormal. they're much stronger than what we were writing for a much more innocent audience back then. <laughs> yeah, some of the books, uh, they dip into erotica quite quickly. but um... Yeah. Which I'm surprised. Uh, I mean, some of the books I've read of yours that weren't that sexualized, so I'm kind of surprised that you uh, that's how you got started, at least for money. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually, I, I was selling stories in, in high school. I wrote my way through college. But when it came time to make a living, when I had a wife and a daughter and, and bills, I, I, uh, I, I, I couldn't afford to, to just, you know, write stories to markets that didn't know me and hope somebody would pay me. Uh, so I started writing this stuff, and I also edited some men's magazines. I edited some hideous weekly tabloids like the, the Inquirer Only Worse. <laughs> and uh, I did that for about 10 years, and I couldn't stand it any longer, and I got back to the field I love. Now, of all the books and, and short stories you've written, could you pick one short story or one novel that you've written that is your favorite, and why? Uh Oh hell, they're all my children. <laughs> I know it's tough. <laughs> I, I can I can do it a different way. My okay. best-selling novel is Santiago. My most awarded anybody's most awarded novel is Kiran Yaga. Mm-hmm. And in shorter works, my most awarded story is a novella called Seven Views of Olduvai Gorge, which won a Nebula and a Hugo and a this and a that, and won awards in five six countries. But my favorite is always uh, the one I'm working on next, and my second favorite is always the one I'm working on today. <laughs> but it almost has to be, otherwise you can't stay excited about it, right? Yeah, it. I, that, that's the thing. You know, you sit alone in a room, and no matter how many times you've sold it, you don't really know until you're done what people are going to think of it. So you really got to not only have confidence, but you've got to love what you're doing. There, what? I, as I keep explaining, there are easier ways to make a buck if you don't love this this is the wrong field for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not easy work. So every writer has their own methods. And oh, just... yeah. The 
the one thing I, I notice is to some degree or another, they they all keep vampire hours. Most of them, like me, right late, late, late at night. And the ones who don't are like my friends Bob Silverberg or Barry Ballsberg who get up at about 4 in the morning when it's dark and nobody bothers them, and then they write in the mornings. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you really, really can't write during the day. Uh, there are just too many distractions. Uh, in fact, there's a joke about a writer. Uh, uh, some fan comes to the door, uh, knocks on it, and wants him to sign an autograph, and he answers the door, and he's stark staring naked except for a bowler hat. <laughs> and the fan looked shocked and said, you know, gee, I, I didn't mean to disturb you like this. He says, no, 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 I always write in the nude. And the fan says, well, what what about the bowler hat? And he says, well, there's always a chance that some inconsiderate asshole will knock on the door and disturb me. <laughs> That's funny. I can I can see it because there is a lot of distractions. And sometimes your family and friends, even though they know you're writing, they don't quite understand the the time and and focus you need to have and and they distract you you know they they're trying to talk to you or ask you to do things and now, years and years ago uh, El Sprague de Camp one of one of our sainted writers from from earlier eras uh, wrote a book called the Science Fiction Handbook in which he he was trying to explain uh, science fiction to to an audience that probably had never heard of it before and he was asking each writer how how uh, how much time they spent. And the best answer came from a guy called Clifford Simic, who wrote City and a number of other classics. This is about 50 years ago. And what he said was, uh, you know, do you mean time at the typewriter or time like hours every day in the garden when, yeah, I'm gardening, but I'm plotting? Yeah, absolutely, because you have to have – it's not just about the writing. You have to come up with the concepts. You have to brainstorm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to think it through. Uh, sometimes you have to sit down and do your research, although God knows Google has made it a lot easier than it used to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, a lot goes into it besides just just the typing. I do more script writing, and I notice with script writing, it's so strict or more strict about the structure because we have so many less pages. So they're all about you have to pre-plan. You don't have to, I guess, but it almost is all about pre-planning every single step before you start writing. Almost. And yeah, and it's it's frustrating too because. The first thing any director that I know does when he's given a script is go through and and cross out every every direction that the scriptwriter gives him because mm-hmm. yeah. he's the director and he's going to decide where he wants a close up and where he wants this and where he wants that and then I suspect the actors do the same thing. <laughs> Some of them do, yes. <laughs> I know it's it's more of a collaborative process, I guess. When you write a novel, the novel's done, and when you write a script, it, it's just step one, basically. So. Yeah, uh, you know, when I write a novel, every word of it is mine, and I don't have to change anything. You know, if I don't like what they say, I can go elsewhere. Uh-huh. But when you write when you write a screenplay, uh, all the all the writers in Hollywood are, are infinitely interchangeable. And then you sit at a story conference with a producer and a director and, you know, seven other executives, and you realize that you, the scriptwriter, are the only one sitting there who doesn't have script approval. <laughs> and, you know, writers out there have you know, minimally less clout than the men's room attendant or the producer's niece's hairdresser. <laughs> I know. That's one of the things I like about TV a little bit more than movies is that writers have a little bit more power in television. Cause they yeah, well, that's, that's true. But, that's, but in movies, 
I mean, yeah. On the movie, the the director's god, and on the writer, uh, interchangeable. On on TV, writer's not quite god, but he's he's a little more powerful than the director. <laughs> on the other hand, I haven't watched a TV show since 1982, so I'm I'm doing this from memory. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> I, de- I decided back then that you know, I was really getting tired of having my intellect insulted every single time I tried to watch a show. <laughs> and um, if I if I gave up watching, you know, an hour and a half, two hours a night, I could probably write another book a year. And I figure I've written another 35 books by not watching television for the last 30 years, and I do not feel culturally deprived. <laughs> probably not. Uh, you know, my, my memory of television... Uh, is not Studio One or Playhouse 90. They didn't last very long. My memory is Gilligan's Island and and the Beverly Hillbillies. And, oh, God, never again. <laughs> I will. I have to say that television in general, because of reality TV shows and such, has gotten a little more sophisticated in their writing since since back in the 80s. But, um, well, maybe it has, but I'm happier with the 35 extra books I wrote. Exactly. You got the right. And not <laughs> wanting to throw something through the TV screen every couple hours. <laughs> For sure. Um, I oh, still watch the news. I watch sports. I watch old movies, but uh, I will not watch a show. Well, and then if you get hooked, you're, you're watching how many hours for each season, you know, 13, 20 hours. So that's a lot of time. Yeah, and back when, when I quit, I think they they were up around, oh, 30. Mm-hmm. That's 28, right. 30 episodes a year. Yeah, they've shrunk over the years. Now it's 13 episode orders are almost the standard, at least for non-network. And in some oh, ways, yeah. that's improved the writing a little bit. Because you, you have to admit, like like if you had to write... It, well, obviously just staff, but in general, if you had to write 20 or more stories in one year, one setting, one group of characters, you couldn't change it too much, it, you, you'd, you'd know you'd have to be faking it, you know, a little bit, change. Of course I would, especially when they told me I had to have a three-minute break two minutes into the show and then 17 minutes into the show and uh-huh. then before the final titles, and uh, it's it's very formulatized, and, you know, I... I have enormous admiration for anybody who can do it and please an audience, but they're not going to get a chance to please me. <laughs> That's why I think it attracted me a little bit to web series because the for, there's no real set format, so you can really play with how you want to present the story. Like they could be very short each episode, very long. So that's something at least for independent filmmakers very attractive. Um, mm-hmm. But for writing novels and short films. Um, you know, for anyone who might be listening who, who wants to break into writing novels, especially science fiction novels, you know, what would you suggest to them on how they could could attempt to do that? And and also an extension to that when writing, what's what's some top like to do not to do's that you feel Okay. Well, basically the first to do is that writers write and people who are not gonna be writers just talk about writing. And it's harder than most people think to to get the discipline to sit down every day no matter what's going on and write but the other thing is especially in science fiction you have to be well read in the field this is a field that gives you all time and space to play with and the one thing they don't want you to do is tell the same story over and over again this is not like mysteries where you get a detective and then you just run him through his paces for the next 30 years Um, one of the things you can do is go to the major conventions, which would be the World Con and the World Fantasy Con, and meet some of the editors, some of the agents, and uh, talk to them, find out what they're looking for, 
and uh, talk to some of the writers. Try to network with them so you can find out about all the stuff that's not necessarily advertised. Most most anthology uh, editors do not advertise that they're doing one because they don't want to read 900 stories for what they're getting paid. What else can I tell you? Uh, there, there are a number of very, very good workshops. The, the toughest to get into, and often the best, is called the Clarion Workshop, C-L-A-R-I-O-N. Mm-hmm. If you Google it, you can get all the information you need about that. Another one uh, is the L. Ron Hubbard Writers of the Future uh, contest. Hubbard has been dead 40 years. Nobody mentioned Scientology. They're really just interested in in working with the potential writers, and they they've turned out some very very good ones. And uh, right now, there's a new workshop that uh, I'm thrilled about because it's taking place on a cruise to the Bahamas in December, and I'm I'm one of one of the uh, workshop leaders. <laughs> they got myself, Nancy Cress, and Kevin Anderson, and Tony Weisskopf, who is the editor and publisher of Bain Books. And Eleanor Wood, who is probably the best agent in the field, and the five of us are going to be lecturing uh, in the evening and in the morning, but all during the afternoon and the the day, uh, people can go ashore or go on submarines or whatever the heck they do. And it's it's going to last about five or six days, and they're already planning another one for 2013. And uh, again, if people want to check these out on um, uh, on the internet, you can Google uh, the the cruise one. It's called Sail to Success. The other two, as I say, are Clarion and Writers of the Future. And and there are others as well. I'm sure there are a number of online workshops. The trick is uh, you don't want the blind leading the blind. You you should have some accomplished writers there who can tell you when you when you're going wrong or can give you information that you're going to need. But uh, as I said, if it was easy, we'd all do it. I like the cruise one. That would be just... Oh, I like the cruise one, too. <laughs> <laughs> that would be just a great you, you, may, you may be assured that the five teachers are, are being comped on this cruise. <laughs> and also, what's a good one, what's a good tip when they're writing of something not to do, like a common mistake early writers make? Well, the first problem uh, is to not read... The, uh, to not be aware of what you're sending to. In other words, uh, analog is known for hard science fiction. They, they almost never do a fantasy. Mm-hmm. The magazine of fantasy and science fiction is mostly fantasy. They, they never do high-tech, hard science stories. So if you have a fantasy and you send it to analog, you've just wasted you know a couple of months of your time, and vice versa. If you have a hard science story and send it to, to fantasy and science fiction, same thing. You have to learn what the magazines are are looking for, and for that you have to study them. Uh, Asimov and Analog uh, are owned by the same company. They have the same publication schedule. Their their offices are about 40 feet apart, uh, and both deal with problems. But Asimov's deals with problems and consequences, and uh, Analog deals with problems and solutions. there are about 15 e-zines, electronic zines, that are paying what CIFWA, Science Fiction Writers of America, considers professional rates. But, again, if you don't read them, you, you could waste a couple of years sending stories to magazines whose format and, and whose, uh, whose character 
simply mitigates against your ever selling to a, a particular story to them. Uh-huh. Uh, another thing is uh, you hear about you know sending off sample chapters in a synopsis. Yeah, but if you're a beginner, they don't know that you can complete the book. So you're going to have to write a whole book before uh, anybody looks at it. Um, Groucho Marx once said that he wouldn't belong to any any country club that would have him as a member. Uh, I, I would move that forward and say I don't think any beginning unsold writer should have an agent who will handle an unsold writer. If your agent isn't isn't busier than that, if he's able to take a, a week or two out of his year to handle an unsold writer, you don't want him. He's he's just not good enough. That's good advice. Before this interview and different discussion, we were talking, and you said that you had sold video game rights to to the weird westerns. Yeah, and, and also, oh, speaking of San Diego, I sold role playing game rights to that. Mm-hmm. I don't. I've never played a video game or a role playing game in my life, so I hope they do a good job. But I'll never know. <laughs> I was curious if you ever played either one. Is that something new, or have you optioned before to? Uh... No, this this is new in both cases. Uh, the San Diego game, the role-playing game, went to a fella called uh, Russ Morrissey, who has a huge web page, uh, capital E, capital N, and he's, he's British, and they've done a number of games, and, and he bought Santiago last year, and it should be coming out about Christmas time. And the video thing uh, was just, oh, maybe a month ago. Uh, it's called Podunk something or other, the, the name of the company. Mm-hmm. And um, they, uh, they they just agreed to buy it, and they have uh, something like uh, 10 months or 12 months, I have to look at the contract, uh, in which to make it. And they tell me they're moving right ahead. So hopefully, although as I say, when they're done, I won't know if the games are any good or not. <laughs> now you have a major novel coming up, uh, The Cassandra Project? Yeah, that's due out in about oh, three, four days, I think. I, I just got my author's copy today. Uh, I, uh, that's a collaboration with Jack McDevitt, a longtime friend, but it's the first time we've ever collaborated. Mm-hmm. And this month, they're also, 7th Street is reprinting a mystery novel of mine called Dog in the Manger. And next month, Pyre is bringing out The Doctor and the Rough Rider. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to check out your Weird Western series. I think that sounds really cool. I mean, I want to check out all your books, but but you make so many so fast. <laughs> well, I like doing it. That, that basically, uh, I love I love what I do, and uh, I, I don't have much of a a private life or a personal life. I just sit here and write books and stories. <laughs> well, I love book series quite a bit, and I've always been a fan of. of series of uh, books. Publi- publishers love them too because they reinforce each other, you know, in sales. Mm-hmm. And back before the days of the superstores like, you know, Barnes and, and Borders, publishers loved them even more because there was a limited amount of rack space and you tended to stay on longer if if you were a series and and you had more than one book in it. And now you've done quite a few series, so I mean, is that something that really attracts well, they're, you? Well, they're just much easier to sell it. In fact, these days, uh, it, it's very difficult to sell a standalone book, even even for me. And huh. for a beginner, I mean, if that's you know, you were asking what's another mistake. It's not a mistake, but if if you're a beginner, at least leave a few loose ends. If you're if you if you don't have sequels planned, leave something so when the editor says, "Can you do another?" You can say yes and know know what you're talking about. 
Oh, well, that's a good tip. I never thought about. I always thought book publishers didn't really want series as much. I don't know, I don't know why. Oh, no, they really they really do. Uh, these days, uh, an endangered species is is a standalone novel to which there are no sequels. <laughs> now, do you feel in book publishing for writers now compared to when you first started out, or, or any at any point between, do you feel that it's easier, harder, or the same to try to break in? From what you talk um, to people, it's it's probably as hard as it ever was. There are a lot more books being published, but there are a lot more writers too. Mm-hmm. When I joined the Science Fiction Writers of America, uh, it was their initial meeting, uh, their organizational meeting in 1965. I think there were 130 of us. Uh, today, there's about 1,800. I guarantee you, no more than a couple of hundred can be making all or even a, a major part of their living from science fiction. But there were some other things, too. Um, At that organizational meeting, uh, they did an informal poll, and it turned out that there were only, in 1965, two writers of science fiction who were making more than $10,000 a year off science fiction. They were Robert Heinlein and Robert Silverberg. Hmm. Asimov and Arthur Clarke were making a lot more money, but they were doing nonfiction. A fanzine called Lance Lantern did a survey, I believe, in 1992, and they found out that more than 75 writers and more than five writers' estates were making $80,000 a year or more. It changed that much that quickly. Wow. That is a major shift. And I would say right now it's probably nowhere near that many anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was a time when, when... uh, you you got your advances to a great extent on, on how well you hyped yourself. Then came the computer. And once they got computer con, uh, returns, uh, you couldn't lie anymore. You couldn't stay a step ahead of your re- returns. That was, that was a, an expression. It meant that you would sell a book to, say, Bantam, and they would give you, you know, a, a nice advance for it. And you would sell the next one to Tor. And you do that before the Bantam book went out and bombed. And then you sell the one after that to Warners before the Tor book had a chance to bomb. That was called staying a step ahead of your returns. But in this computer age, it can't be done. And advances on book deals, is that common or only after you've been established? After you've sold a few books? Uh, you have to get an advance. Uh, that's the name of the game. Uh, this is what writers live on is their advances. Uh, mm-hmm. Royalties are, are wonderful to have when you get them, but not every book earns out. And uh, not every book that is going to earn out earns at the same rate or, or at a rate that lets you pay your bills. So, yeah, you have to have an advance. Okay. Uh, I would say the average beginner's advance in the field hasn't changed much in about 25 years anyway. Uh, it's it's four to $6,000. I didn't know if they would take the chance, like the first time someone writes a novel, to pay them out well, in advance first. Yeah, they they have to. And from the publisher's point of view, he can't lose money on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons publishers love categories, whether it's romance, mysteries, Western, science fiction, is every category has a ceiling above which it won't sell, except for the occasional Dune or Gorky Park. It has a floor below it which which it won't sell. So as long as the publisher keeps his costs below the floor, he can't lose money. I mean, you know, if he pays a beginner $4,000 and he gives him generic cover art and maybe a tenth of a page ad in Locus or one of the other trade scenes, he can't lose money. If he, if he printed all blank pages, 
he knows he's going to sell 6,812 paperbacks or whatever it is. So as long as he keeps his expenses below that, he's fine. The only way he can get hurt is to pay a beginner, you know, 50,000 bucks or hire Frank Frazetta to do the cover or print 600,000 copies. So we won't do that. Uh, the author is pretty much on his own for his first two or three books. And if he proves that he can sell a little above average with no help from the publisher, at that point, the publisher is happy to step in and, and promote him. But, uh, if the author doesn't do that, you know, the publisher can look at his first two or three books and say, well, you know, we can we can buy this guy forever and make $300 a book off him forever, or we can get rid of him and maybe the next guy along that we buy will be the next Asimov. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Now, is there, for a writer, especially science fiction, is there an equivalent like to the Writers Guild, you know, for script writing? What uh, what organizations could they join, and what benefits they get? From uh, we we have a group called the Science Fiction Writers of America. They right. give out the Nebula Award, and they they uh, have a banquet once a year. Uh, they have a grievance committee that that operates uh, very very quietly, and and has solved a lot of problems. But they're 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 not the the fighting organization that uh some of the others are. Do you have a website or anything you'd like to mention? The the website is www.mikeresnick.com. Mm-hmm. And other than that, uh, go to your bookstore and spend your money. Hi, I'm R.A. Salvatore, Bob Salvatore. Been writing fantasy books for 25 years now and going strong, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to Mike Resnick for agreeing to the interview, and we look forward to his future books. I'm currently reading the first book in his Weird West series, and I'm really enjoying it. Maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode. And uh, next up, we have an interview from uh, the sets of Star Trek New Voyages, or Phase 2, with director Mark Burchett. But first... But first, we do have a phone call. So let's see who's on the line. Live radio. This could be interesting. <laughs> hello. Well, hello there. I believe it's somebody's birthday today. I, oh. It is somebody's birthday today. Yeah, it's hi, it is, isn't Thank it? You. Well, hello, Julie. Um, are hi. you ready for this? Get your ears on. I'm about to uh, song out. get rid of all your, all your listeners in one foul swoop. Are you ready? Okay. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Julie. Happy birthday to you. Woo! Hey, you, you're good. Thank you. But it sounded better before when I was trying to do it really crappingly like Marilyn Monroe. Well, if you're like me, after a little bit of alcohol, I always sound better. I don't know if I really do. I feel like I do. (laughs) I've not not had any alcohol to do this song whatsoever. No alcohol. Um, Well, then you're definitely very good. Next year, I'll play on the guitar, okay? (laughs) That's great. Maybe next year I'll learn the guitar. Next year, I'll learn the guitar. Yes, it's Julie's day, so congrats to her. I have radio, so I could lie on my age. <laughs> Negative. I thank you. Yes, I am now officially 15 years older than I was yesterday. <laughs> we were going to chat a little bit about Ian. You can help us out here. We're going to do a, do a little bit of chat about some of the obviously some of the big sci-fi news, and it's either really great or sort of. Okay. 
a, a, a little twit. Um, you know, I'd go further than that call and get a twat, but there we go. <laughs> um, that, that's going to be lost in translation on some of the American listeners that don't know what that is. But, yeah, you know. I was going to try to explain that one to me. But, um, but you know, and, and my first reaction was, oh, no, they're going to Disney-fy it. But he really already did with episodes one, two, and three. And, and then I started thinking back, and I was watching on a – kind of non-sequitur, I guess, but watching on a PBS about, you know, the history of Broadway and they're going through periods. And, and really, Disney helped, believe it or not, I mean, you know, people were worried whenever Disney invested in, in Broadway. And they're like, oh, God, it's going to ruin. And it really brought about a revival. So, I don't know, maybe if they can do it for Broadway, they can do it for Star Wars. <laughs> I, I well, certainly I think if, if you, sorry, Matt, um, if you look at what Disney have done with the event with with the uh, Marvel movies, they've not they've not really um, in, interfered with those in any way because those those yeah, are, are still produced. But, you know? Yeah, they have turned out fantastic. That's, I if, they, really if they manage it the same way as as Marvel, then I think it may may do well. Yeah, I mean, they they might. You know, they have businesses because they're still around, so they might realize. But what, what concerns me is they're definitely keeping George Lucas in as a creative consultant, and I think they're – he said that he's going to be pretty involved, but I kind of hope he's not. <laughs> I hope I they're he's... smart enough that they, they'll go, that's nice. We're going to get someone who won't screw up the script. <laughs> I think he's lost the edge of Oh, God love him. I, he, <laughs> he just hit gold on the first three, and and bless his heart. And he, he did have a good run there for a long time, but he, he Marks is right. He lost his edge. He got out of it. And yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, then again, if he, he stays in it partially, then, Maybe he'll get his edge back. <laughs> well, maybe he just works better as a collaborator rather than fully in charge. That's true. You know, maybe it's just better other people direct and he just kind of oversees. Yeah. To be honest, Mark, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't have as much involvement as in the first trilogy of films than he did in the second trilogy of films because he wrote and directed and produced every single one of that second trilogy of films. Now, if you look at the, um, you know, Star Wars, the first one, and Return of the Jedi, the third one, are the ones that he, he kind of did. But the third one was Erwin Kirshner, you know, his, his mm-hmm. film school teacher, who, 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 who directed that one. And that, 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 that second one, out of the first trilogy, is by far... Even to this day, the strongest of the three movies, you know. Yeah. And I think I think Return of the Jedi is actually where it started to go wrong, because Lucas started seeing how well all the merchandise will go in, and lo and behold, you get Ewoks. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not as harsh on the Ewoks as a lot of people, but um, but yeah, the second one. Uh, they're better. Is, is the best one. They're better than Jar Jar. Oh my! You know the bar is set so low with Jar Jar. <laughs> <laughs> amazing technology, amazing CGI. Well, you know they created but, a lot of the special effects while making it. They were so far ahead of their time. I think that's one thing you could say about both trilogies of Star Wars is they're revolutionary technology-wise. So technically, they're very, very sound. It just in the the new trilogy or the prelude trilogy, I think they lost somewhere in the translation of the heart of the story. The characters were really made the, sh- made the movies in the first trilogy. Yeah. Well, we could talk all day about this. Very, 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 very quickly, on a closing note um, for you here, um, I, I hate that first trilogy so much. I actually have a T-shirt 
and it's a, it's produced by a company. I'm not sure if it's thing in business called Tosmas or something. And it, it says Tosma Wars: Revenge of the Shit. And it's got and it's got two. It's got it's got kind of like a Yoda type character and a turd engaged in a lightsaber battle. It's a really cool T-shirt. <laughs> I was, I, I, can you send us a photo of that sometime? I would love to see that shirt. <laughs> uh, try. I get told off by my ten-year-old niece for wearing it. You know, I I go. You know, she goes, "What sort of example is that? You know, you wearing that T-shirt? You know, so, you know. Well, you know, which one do you want me to wear? Do you wear that one, or do you want me to wear the other one that says, no, I will not fix your computer'? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I got into with a. I was teasing my brother because he's got three kids and they're very young, and when they were even younger, they said about watching Star Wars, and I said, uh, which, which. Which one? And he said, like, episode one, two, or three. I was like, why? And he's like, because he's six. That's why. <laughs> he's like six years old. That's the one he likes. That's what I'm putting in. But uh, anyway, sorry. Mark's is signaling to move on. <laughs> We're running out of time. Sorry. This is, this is live radio. we got time limits. <laughs> well, thank you, Ian, for calling in. Yeah, but thank you so much for yeah, calling in. And thank you for the birthday wishes. That was sweet. <laughs> Uh, no problem. Um, you, you you have a good day, Jimmy, and um, I'm, I'm going to be um, I'm going to be away this weekend. I'm going to be me, so you know, I I won't be around to distract Max from his editing this weekend. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. Well, we're gonna um, I think put you on hold or something. We've got another interview coming up. Yeah, so we got our second interview. We need to get that Star Trek, a different it's Star a different Trek franchise, not Star Wars, Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> right, Thanks, Ian. Ian. Now let's get to that interview with director Mark Burchett. He teases about some of the episodes, upcoming episodes of Star Trek Phase Two that he directed. His views on the new actor who's playing Kirk in this award-winning and very long-running fan production of Star Trek. I think uh, we were talking about on set, and they're just about to hit their tenth anniversary, ten years. Wow! So that's incredible. All right, here we go. This is Marks, and you're listening to Jean Entertainment. I'm here in upstate New York at the set of Star Trek Phase 2 with one of the directors. Uh, could you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, hi. My name is Mark Burchett, and I'm director on the episodes Mind Sifter and Bread and Savagery. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about those episodes? Well, Mind Sifter is, a, is from a short story that was written uh, as part of the first anthology of Star Trek fan fiction back in 1974, and it was... Uh, a very memorable story, and I remember reading it when I was 14 years old. And when I was approached to direct the episode based on it, I was just all for it. I'd already envisioned the episode in my head, you know, when I was a teenager. So it was really cool to bring it to life. And uh, Brent Savagery, what can you tell us? I know it's not out yet, so what can you say? Anything? All I can say is that it uh, revisits the story from the original series, Bread and Circuses. And we've got a really talented cast of people, and it is our introduction to the new Captain Kirk, uh, Brian Gross. And for people who may not remember what Bread and Circuses is about, what's that episode about? Well, it's when the Enterprise approached a planet looking for a lost uh, ship, and they find a 20th century version of the Roman Empire on this planet, along with televised gladiatorial games and such. And the captain of the lost ship had actually become a high official in the Roman government there. Um, and it was up to the Enterprise to try and 
reduce the amount of cultural contamination that was uh, brought about by the crew of the Enterprise. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about your film background? Well, I uh, studied film when I was at the University of Cincinnati. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in broadcasting and film. Uh, it's something I've always been interested in. I made little 8 millimeter movies as a kid. Um, as an adult, I've directed four feature films, three of which have gone into national distribution. Uh, I hadn't actually been associated with the Star Trek Phase Two production, um, but I'd been a huge fan on the internet. I got an uh, email because apparently a director, the, the woman who was originally supposed to direct Mindsifter, dropped out two weeks before production. They were scrambling to find a director. And one of the guys who was in the production staff had actually seen a couple of my movies, and he knew that I was interested in that sort of thing. So yeah, I got an email from one of the producers, Rob Morrow, asking me if I'd be interested, and I just jumped at the chance. Uh, but I've loved Star Trek since I was a kid, and the chance to make it be real with this incredibly talented group of people is just, you know, it's more fun than I could ever hope to convey to somebody. Now, as a Star Trek fan, do you find it challenging to try to duplicate the look of Star Trek and the feel of Star Trek, but also add your own unique touch to it? Yeah, it's challenging. Um, I really enjoy the fact that we're able to reproduce the 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 look of it um but yeah you want to bring your own voice to it at the same time uh i've gotten to contribute on the creative side to the sort of the direction the series is going in that i was asked to help recast a couple of characters uh the biggest challenge and the biggest you know honor really was uh when james james Colley, the producer of the show who had been playing captain kirk since its inception uh called me and asked me if i could help him recast the role of captain kirk that he wanted to concentrate more on the executive producer role of the show and um so after two hours on the phone tried to talk him out of it because i really liked him in the part um he finally convinced me that it was something that he really felt was the right thing to do at this point and so i uh gave him several names including the, that of uh, brian gross and he saw brian's reel and just was blown away um, I also got a chance to recast Lieutenant Uhura as our previous Lieutenant Uhura had you know, left to pursue other projects. And uh, a wonderfully talented young actress named Jasmine Pierce, I'd, uh, I'd known her for several years. She was, she'd uh, studied at uh, New York University and uh, had just graduated, and I contacted her, and you know, she came up to the studios and was a wonderful Uhura. So, yeah, I, I, I feel a lot of my contributions creatively and my own you know fingerprints on the series are with things like that now some people may have seen brian in on tv he's been on a lot of projects how did you get to uh to know him how did you make that contact and and what what has he been in that someone may have seen him in uh well he's been on a lot of episode uh he's been in a lot of uh television shows on the networks uh he did guest appearances i believe on csi uh, Cold Case. He was on uh, Saving Grace with uh, Holly Hunter. Uh, he's also done a number of uh, B movies. Uh, he was in uh, 2001 Maniacs with Robert Englund. And uh, he had just completed a movie that I helped with in Indiana with my producing partner, uh, Bill Dever, uh, the remake of The Giant Gila Monster. He did a wonderful job in all of those things. And, you know, he projects a real strong kirk-like quality to him i mean he's not in no way imitating J william shatner uh as 
James Colley also did not imitate William Shatner, but yeah, Brian is actually from Iowa as the character is supposed to be, and he has just this really charming quality to him while at the same time being you know, strong and assertive. And he's also just like too handsome. I, I really wished I could hate him for that. Uh, but he's just such a nice guy, it's impossible. You said you watched all the episodes of Phase 2. You've kept up with it, at yeah. least. And, and uh, what is your favorite episode and why? Well, other than Bread and Savagery, which I think is going to turn out to be really great, the best one that I've seen, and I like all of them, but the best one I've seen was World Enough in Time, where uh, George Takei came back to play Sulu. Um, it was a wonderfully written script. It was wonderfully produced. Uh, the acting in it throughout was great. I think it's his best acting ever. I think that he really wasn't given nearly enough to do as Sulu, and he really got to show his, uh, show his talents in this. And he also had a wonderful young actress who was playing his daughter from an alternate timeline. And she was just lovely and charming, and it was really emotional. It's Of all the Star Trek series that have come along, including the movies... I would place this in the top 10 episodes ever. And I know that they uh, were nominated for a Hugo Award for it, and they also won the TV Guide Award for Best Web Series against one that was done by Battlestar Galactica. So that says something about the quality. Great. And do you keep up with web series at all? I mean, what do you think are the benefits of web series and what their future might be? Well, I think that that's where the future is. I mean, everybody has to sort of figure out how they can make money doing it so that, you know, it's not just a hobby. Uh, but with so many people not even watching regular television anymore, I know any number of people who only watch things on, you know, streaming on the Internet. And I'd say there's a real market for these types of web-based series. And that's really where probably the future is laying. Now, I've heard talks that you've been in the process of directing a, a Wild West uh uh, I'm assuming web series or fan production. Yes, it's uh, also working with James Colley, um, sort of branching out to another classic 1960s television show. Uh, I was a fan of the Wild Wild West when I was a kid, and so was James. And uh, we started uh, shooting a, a uh, pilot episode with him and Paul Sieber, who has also worked on Star Trek Phase Two. Um they worked incredibly well together. The attention to detail is the same as it is here on the Star Trek set. Uh, James is playing Captain James West, the old Robert Conrad role, and Paul is playing Artemis Gordon, his sidekick, uh, who was played by the late Ross Martin. Uh, the costumes are perfect. In fact, Paul's Artemis Gordon outfit actually was ross martin's outfit we got it from the same costume house out in la and uh we st it still had ross martin's name stenciled inside it so we're going for that kind of accuracy james's uh wardrobe is an exact copy of one of uh robert conrad's outfits which james actually owns but doesn't want to mess up on a set but yeah he was able to get all the correct you know materials and measurements from it and so it is a precise copy which is i think Anybody who's worked with James or enjoys James's work enjoys that kind of attention to detail that he places there because it's just absolutely perfection. Mr. Spock? Captain. Mr. Scott? We're ready, sir. Phase one test showed that she's exceeded all design expectations. 
Then let's begin phase two. Hi, I'm Victor Miller. I wrote Friday the 13th, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to Mark for the interview, and we've got many more interviews coming up soon in a special episode with the cast of the series. Now, a sound clip in the start and the end of that interview was from Star Trek Phase 2's vignette, Going Boldly, which I did cinematography on and Mark directed. Just a little warm-up on the upcoming episodes, and you can find it right now on YouTube. So, that's it for today's Genretainment, and check back next week with all new guests, and join us right back here on this channel at SciFiPulseRadio.com next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific. Until next time. Until next time. time.